Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. Had a big discussion in a uh, podcast group about, should I say good evening, good morning, good afternoon, or should podcasters be rigid and not worry about those kind of things? And I came to the conclusion after 400 shows that if I haven't broken the habit by now, I'm probably never going to. But first, uh, Veritas Apparel, uh, free shipping, uh, 10% off when you use promo code Mallard or come over to Mallard.com and click the link through. Or go to veritiesapparel.com slash Mallard, save 10% and get free shipping and all kinds of fun stuff. Talked to Aaron yesterday about some other fun stuff. A lot of fun things going on over there. That's veritiesapparel.com slash Mallard. My guest tonight, I, I want to say, is I, you know, I always tell people this. Oh, good friend of the show, and he hasn't been on in two years. That doesn't make me a good friend, does it? My, my guest tonight is Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. How are you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing great, Jim, and and we are good friends, and I am a friend of the show, and and you know it's it, what's I'm glad you said that because the thing about people who are friends, even if you don't see them for two years, when you do connect, it was just like yesterday. Yes, and and that's how I feel about about your show. What I like about it is um, there's no holds barred. It's an open forum discussion. It's open-minded, and I really appreciate that, you know, because um, you present so many different topics, paranormal and otherwise, in, in a way that uh, people can can listen and then make up their own minds. That's my goal, not to be the opinionator, even though I do espouse opinions from time to time. It's my goal to get Mark on and let him tell his, his, his story, agree with it or disagree with it. I've got to... Let try to get his whole story out, not just be closed-minded to think he's full of something. Even though I don't think Mark's full of something, but <laughs> well, he's well, full of a lot of stuff. Sure. But not. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Where, where's that rewind button? I was watching Robin Williams earlier today, and he was he clicked the rewind button and you know made a bunch of noise and started over. <laughs> Mark, so the last time we talked, you were either. The taping of the doctors had been done, but it hadn't aired yet, so you couldn't really talk to me about anything. And then I read, was reading on your website that I've missed most of that story. Yeah, the uh, the doctor show was was really fascinating because they had me do a reading for a family on a cold case, and what happened was uh, a lot of things came through, which eventually led to the arrest of the killer. 
and uh, the, the the victim, her name was Allison Feldman, and she lived in uh, in the Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. And she was brutally raped and murdered in her own home. It was an absolutely horrific crime. And uh, the doctors arranged for me to do a reading for her cousin and for her father. And so during the reading, what started happening, Jim, was the spirit of Allison came through, and she began to give me facts and things about her and about um, her father and her cousin that that uh, you know I couldn't possibly know. And then I kept getting that... Um, but the police needed, uh, they were missing something in the DNA. And that they needed to broaden the parameters of the DNA testing. Also, that the killer would be caught, he would already be behind bars on another uh, crime. And then I kept getting the names Franklin and Terrence. And there's a lot of other things, but I just want to focus on those. Otherwise, we'll be talking just about this all night. So, the family went back from L.A. after we taped the show to Phoenix. And they told the police this, and of course the police were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they instituted, they meaning the Phoenix police, instituted a new DNA test. And the first time it was ever used in the state of Arizona was on this case. And it's called the familial DNA test. So what it does is even though there was, uh, there was DNA collected at the site um, of, from, of the murder, it didn't link to any, any murders. But the familial DNA test broadens the parameters and it searches for markers in people that could be relatives of the suspect. And bingo, they immediately found markers on this guy that was in jail, I believe on a child molestation case, so, you know, he's a total you know, loser in, <laughs> in my book. And um, then this guy's brother got his fourth or fifth drunk driving charge. And see, once you start getting over three DUIs in most states, that then authorizes the police to obtain a warrant to get a blood sample from you. Normally it's a breath test or and you can refuse it, but there comes a period where, um, because of exigent circumstances, meaning that unless the police get the blood right now, uh, the body... Short. They get a, oh, hold on, a Mark. I, I got I got to stop you for a second because I I uh, pushed the wrong button. We lost about ten seconds of air there. So you were ex ex. What was that word? Accidental circumstances. Exigent circumstances. Exigent e x i g e n t. Exigent circumstances means like emergency circumstances. Long story short, the police did a blood draw on this guy, found a direct match. So so the killer was the brother of the guy sitting in jail on child molestation charges. And as it came through from Allison's spirit in the reading, the killer would be arrested. He would already be behind bars, but on a different charge. So so he's, uh, um, they're currently uh, in the process of prosecuting this, this guy. And then the two names, Franklin and, and Terrence. Well, the first time the familial DNA test was ever used in the United States was in California, to capture the Grim Reaper serial killer, whose name was Lonnie Franklin. And then um, in 2017, the first time that the familial DNA test was challenged, its validity was challenged in court, was in the state of New York by a man named Terrence Phillips. So I find it very interesting that the names Franklin, which you know, coincide with Lonnie Franklin, 
who was the first, uh, it was a serial killer that they used this test to capture. And then the person challenging the test, his first name is Terrence. So um, the killer is still, um, has not yet come to trial, and I'm, I'm keeping, uh, keeping an eye on that. So that's what happened uh, with uh, the doctor's uh, appearance. And is that your, I don't even know what the word I want to use, Mark, is, is that your most beneficial, I guess, reading that you've um, done? Not necessarily. I've, I've been, uh, consul- uh, law enforcement in other cases has consulted me on various things, and I've given them information which has led to to the compilation of, of evidence, which hopefully will lead to the arrest. Um, as it came out in the doctors, I actually um, was doing a public event, and the spirit of a little girl came through, and I said she she was in a state of extreme decomposition, and I started explaining it and what she looked like, and this guy in the audience stood up and raised his hand, and it turned out he was the man that found Kaylee Anthony's body. And um, we all remember the Casey Anthony trial, um, the the mother who allegedly murdered her little girl in Orlando, and um, this guy was a truck driver, and he was driving, and he stopped along a wooded area to relieve himself, and he started smelling something that smelled like a dead body, and he found the skeletal remains of a child that had tape over her, her face and mouth, and initially he was arrested and, and considered a suspect, but uh, the police concluded that he did not kill her, that he simply found the body. And then, of course, the evidence led to the arrest of uh, Casey Anthony. Um, I was also consulted by military intelligence once for um, information about the pilot, the, the uh, only pilot that we lost in Gulf War One back in the 90s. And the information that I gave, um, they eventually found the wrecked aircraft and the pilot's body five miles from the crash, and it coincided with the information that I brought through, that he, he survived, he parachuted, but he was taken prisoner, brutalized, beaten to death, and burned. So there's been a number of, of incidents where, where people come to me um, for, for uh, insights into murder cases, and there's been other cases. Uh, there's one that I'm really not at liberty to talk about, but but what people need to understand is that police oftentimes use psychics, but the information, Jim, that we produce is certainly not admissible in court. That's because it's hearsay. And through the rules of evidence, as an attorney, I've come up against hearsay evidence more times than I can even, uh, even count. Uh, but hearsay evidence is an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And unless it can be verified or there's an exception to the hearsay rule, it's not coming into evidence. And as I said on the doctors, can you think of a more, more of a hearsay statement than something produced by a spirit? Um, but what we can do is give the police information which puts them on the trail of, of information of suspects which can and will lead to the acquisition of evidence that is admissible in court and which um, can be used to arrest and hopefully successfully prosecute the uh, uh, the culprit. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, Mark. My show note writer put me up to this, so but this is probably the worst joke you're ever going to hear. Just fair warning. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I'm, he and I me... hear lousy lawyer jokes all the time. So I know. So, so uh, this is... Uh, 
I'm prefacing it by telling you that because um, he told me I wouldn't do it. But see now how I made it work that I would do it by blaming him for it. I'm supposed to ask you if you were ever surprised by a verdict in court because of your ability. Well, what I can say about this is that a good attorney um, should have a pretty darn good idea of of how the trial is going to go. And, I mean, you know if you've got an innocent client or a strong case or whatever. The problem is when you turn things over to a jury, you never know what a jury is going to do. Um, you can try the same case with the same facts, same evidence in front of 10 different juries and potentially receive 10 different outcomes. So the answer is a qualified yes. And as I, I can't remember who it was. They were on the show again months ago. They told me that an attorney should never know, never ask a question they don't know the answer to when they're in court. Well, that's kind of the rule of thumb, okay? And, and the reason for that is you should have already done your homework. You should already have your evidence, your depositions, whatever, to where if you ask a witness a question, the, the reason you're asking the witness that question is because you want to elicit a particular answer. Now, what's funny is a, a lot of times things happen and you have to go on intuition. And I was doing this trial. I, I was representing this guy. He had been arrested for drunk driving. And with all due respect to my client, he was a very nice guy, but he was not the most physically attractive person in the world, okay? I mean, he had a very gnarly appearance. You know you know the actor Paul Giamatti, whom I absolutely adore, okay? This guy makes Paul Giamatti look like a GQ model, okay? I mean, he's just a, a gnarly-looking guy, okay? And the cop who arrested him looked like Tom Cruise right out of Top Gun. I mean, he was like fit and trim, the high cheekbones, the blue eyes, the black hair, the shiny badge, and and the jury was all women. And I'm like, oh no! <laughs> like, so Tom Cruise is sitting on the witness stand, and he's giving all the right answers and all this. But the thing is, my client, he he claims he was not under the influence, and he he refused a breath test, or he couldn't take one because he had some physical problems. The guy was a physical wreck. And when he breathed, he wheezed. He's like, you know, so I got this wheezing, like, gnarly guy sitting next to me, but a really nice guy. And um, but and the cop was making a big deal out of the fact that my client had bloodshot eyes. And I said, well, officer, a lot of people can have bloodshot eyes from a lot of different things, like uh, perhaps being around smoke. He goes, well, that is true. I said, perhaps from pool chlorine. He goes, well, I suppose that could be true. Maybe from allergies. I suppose that is true. And then all of a sudden something hit me. And it was like, what am I feeling they get? I said, and from someone crying. And he looks at me and says, I've never seen anyone have bloodshot eyes from crying. And I go, are you married? <laughs> and all of a sudden the guy's face, he goes, I never made her cry! Like that. <laughs> uh, and all of a sudden all the women on the jury just looked at him like you you know what i mean and it's like it looked like someone went up and stuck lemons in all their mouths they just scowled at him and all of a sudden he went from you know tom cruise to lucifer on the witness stand let me tell you something um jim when the jury went into deliberations they came back in under under five minutes with a not guilty and I know <laughs> it's because I trusted my intuitive uh, sense or 
uh, you know, spear came through. And my client in this case was truly not guilty, so justice was served. But um, that was funny. So even though you should not ask a question that you don't know the answer to, sometimes you have to trust your feelings, trust your intuitive sense. So I'm finding myself all the time on the show asking questions that I don't have the answer to because that's why I'm having people on. Well, that that's part of being a good interviewer, too. I mean, if you just sit there and ask, okay, so what do you do? What books have you written? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, anybody can do that, but sometimes you have to throw things off the cuff and, and shake it up a bit. So, um, you know, it's... it's um, I mean, if you look at uh, somebody like Anderson Cooper or Oprah Winfrey or... or uh, um, Gosh, Chris Matthews, I mean, I consider these people really good interviewers. You know that probably, I'd say, 60 to 70% of the questions that they ask are rehearsed or, or prepared, but they also go with their gut, too. So having praised all these good interviews, good interviewers, now I, I do, I'm going to ask this question because I do know the answer to this, and I know now's the time because we're, we're trending that direction. We're already, what, 15 minutes in. And um, I know when, once we get kind of down a little bit further down the list of these questions, I'll look at the clock and be like, Mark, it's been good having you on, but it's time to go. So let, let's get let's do some housekeeping here. Work, give me the website and talk about the books for a few minutes and all that fun stuff. Well, um, my website is the same as my last book, which is evidenceofeternity.com. And so if you go to evidenceofeternity.com, you can find out about the work that I do and about both my books, Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity, uh, my upcoming events. I'm going to be in Naples, Florida on Saturday, April 26th at the Unity um, of, of Naples. I'll be there the uh, 26th and 27th. And on the 27th, I'll be doing um, a presentation a mediumship demonstration to the congregation, and I really love going to Naples. It's a beautiful church, and the Unity Churches, they're metaphysical Christians. So what it is, they're open to Buddhism, Hinduism, um, the teachings of all the great uh, um, uh, spiritual leaders. It's not a chapter, line, and verse, you're a sinner in a bad type of uh, a religion. It's, it's a very positive, and I speak it and, and present mediumship demonstrations at Unity Churches nationwide. And Unity of Naples is one of the most beautiful. So if you go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, you can find out about how to get tickets. And I uh, understand uh, ticket sales are going very well. We heard from the church today, and they said that uh, um, you know uh, people are very excited about the event. Um, and um, then, I'm, then also on my website, it'll show other events that I'm going to be speaking at around the country. Um, I'll be speaking at the International Association of Near-Death Studies over Labor Day weekend, which is in September, and I'm presenting uh, Rulers, Royal Psychics, and Spirits, the mystics behind the thrones, uh, and how people that have both psychic ability and who have had near-death experiences have impacted and shaped world history. Um, then, of course, there'll be other events, which will all be listed on my website, Evidence of Eternity. Now, when, when you get up, when you when you get up in front of a crowd to speak about mediumship, I mean, there's a difference between doing a that's a gallery reading, right, where you pick up random. Yeah, people. that's that's yeah, that's what I, I call a gallery reading. In England, they call it uh, platform work. Uh, some people call it a mediumship demonstration. Basically, it's like I get up in front of a crowd of people. I open up my brain to higher frequencies. Spirits come forward, and I'll start connecting. 
uh, various uh, attendees uh, to with their loved ones in spirit. Is that more difficult or, well, I don't well, know. It's a lot of work. It's, it, it's really, you know, it's very draining. Um, and because uh, I put I put a lot of energy into what I do. And I just don't stand there and go, okay, there's a mirror coming. I mean, I'm all over the place, okay, because that's how it works with me. When I start connecting, it's like this massive amount of energy flowing through my system. And um, it's interesting when I when I see films of myself, like when I, I, I'm on television doing readings and I see it afterwards because um, I can see, like, when there's a shift. When, when they connect with me, I, I kind of, like, get this physical change going on. Um, but it's interesting for me to see it. I mean, people tell me that all the time. They go, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden you connect and you, like, turn into this different, you know. And what it is, it's like my brain's like a radio, and all of a sudden I'm tuning into a station, and I'm connecting, and, and energy and information start flowing through me, and then I'm able to to, uh, to describe what I'm experiencing. Um, so so that's, that. you know, it's a very high-energy thing. And then when I do a one-on-one reading, yeah, that's very high-energy too, but... The advantage with a one-on-one reading is I have the time to spend with a person, and we're going to be getting more than one spirit coming through for them. Whereas in a, a gallery event, I want to get to as many people as possible, um, and also, um, you know, bring forth uh, messages that are relevant uh, not just to the person that I'm um, connecting with, but to other people in the audience as well. This might be a bad analogy, but you're going to have to deal with it. A gallery reading is like being an air traffic controller trying to get all the planes on the ground safely. That's actually a really good... You know, I've never heard it that way. That's the best analogy ever. I, well, I think that's that, great. That, that, that's a, go can ahead I and use that one? <laughs> use that one because it just came to me and I'm just giving the gift, so it's all yours. Yeah, that that's great. Yeah, think about all, our, all, right, all the spirits. Okay, so we're at um, uh, O'Hare in, in Chicago, okay? Busy airport or LaGuardia, take your pick, any big airport, and spirits are all the planes flying around, and I'm the air traffic controller, and okay, this one's coming in. All right, now over on this lane, okay, over here, up gate B. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I don't know where it came from, but you can have it, that's for sure. Alrighty uh, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yesterday, what, what, a, what when was that, around 2.33 o'clock, I got a tweet from Germantown Runner, who is strangely missing from my chat room tonight, but that's okay. Um, about the Cathedral of Notre Dame being on fire. So, obviously, it comes to my phone, I see the headline, and then I get time a little bit later, and I click on the, the, the live stream of it. And never been, never have been there, but I've seen pictures for throughout the course of my life of different things in there. I went, well, that's just horrible on so many levels. What, what was your gut reaction the first time you got, well, seen it or got the news? Well, I was actually at the airport in Houston yesterday because I had just finished a tour of, of Houston. And I have to admit, I burst into tears when I saw that because I've spent a lot of time in Paris. Um, you know, I'm known as a psychic lawyer, but I'm also known as the psychic explorer. And I've spent a good deal of my life traveling to mystical and spiritual locations around the world. And when I was in Paris, certainly Notre Dame comes to the forefront there um, because it, it was just heart-wrenching. For me, it was like watching that magnificent cathedral burn was like watching a good friend die. And it, it just it just shook me to my very core. And I'm not alone in this sentiment. I mean, people 
around the world are just absolutely devastated. And Notre Dame, it was built um, 850 years ago, but it took a century to build it. And what's so fascinating, the, the, the part that went up was the roof. They called, um, they called the roof and uh, structure the forest because it took 13,000 trees to, to build the roof of Notre Dame. And what is so fascinating about this, Jim, is what they did is when they cut down the trees, they, the French in the Middle Ages, they soaked the timbers in a swamp for 25 years to condition and to shape them, also to make sure they wouldn't have uh, mold and mildew on it. And then they fashioned this into the, the cathedral. And given the lifespan of people at the time, and it was very rare for people, uh, for, for the common person, to live past 30 years old. So this would be the people who, the architects and designers who would have been their great and even great-great-grandchildren who completed this. I mean, the idea of building something over a century. And luckily, it, it's such an engineering marvel with the, the stone masonry work um, the vast majority of the cathedral is stone, um, but, but I mean, the damage that's been done is absolutely horrible, but the fact that most of the cathedral is intact is kind of miraculous. Oh, for sure. And then you, I mean, because my first thought was all the stained glass. Yeah, well, some of it was definitely damaged, but the huge window... Um, in the front, the spire falling made me almost wanted to, to, to vomit when I saw that. I wrote something I'd like to share with the listeners uh, on Facebook. I, I showed a, I posted a picture of Notre Dame, and I wrote, "As the civilized, excuse me, as the civilized world mourns the damage to the world heritage site of Notre Dame Cathedral, I somehow feel there is hope yet for hum- humanity. Although this appears to have been an accident, it is also a glimpse." of an apocalypse that could be. However, no matter your ethnicity, faith, or background, if we stand together and realize we are all the children of God, what happened to Notre Dame may be a vision of what will not come to pass when we truly learn to love others as we love ourselves. That's good, Mark. We need to, we need to, we need we need a lot. We need more love. Well, well, we do. I mean, there's so much tension and strife and anger uh, in the world, and and the fact of the matter is that's the way the world's always been. It, it's always been absolutely um, divisive and and filled with anger and and violence. And and then the problem is, you know, religions um, certainly stir this up. And Notre Dame, I mean, outside of the Vatican, it's probably one of the most, or not probably, it is one of the most revered sites in in uh, Catholicism and, and in Christianity in general um, and religion causes so much divisiveness when people get into this my God's better than your God my religion's superior to your religion and it makes me think of something that Pope John Paul II said probably about about 15 years or 15 or maybe 20 years ago he, he was in the Middle East, and he, he was talking to a group of Muslims, and he said, you know, I'm not here to try to change anyone's mind. He said, what I'm asking everyone to do is to actually follow the teachings of the religions. He said, that because they're all about peace. And uh, he says, if we would do that, then we would have peace. 
And the problem is people say that, well, I accepted, you know, Jesus as my Lord and Savior, so therefore I'm a Christian, therefore I get to judge you. People say, aha, I'm a member of the, you know, I'm a Muslim, and so therefore I have a superior religion, and people, oh, I'm a chosen religion, and I'm this and I'm that. And that's not what it's all about. All the religions are boiled down to a golden rule. All the religions have the golden rule that you treat others the way you wish to be treated. All the religions are based on love and peace. But human beings use them and mold them as a moral justification for their own ego-driven political agendas. And that's where everything goes sour, is when it becomes that. I mean, we see this in our own country in the politics, and I don't, I don't want to get into the whole political thing, but people start this, well, I'm really a Christian and you're not. It's like, well, who's anyone to define someone else's uh, relationship with God? I mean, that's a very, very personal decision. Yeah, and as you mentioned, politics breeds so much anger and divide. That's a whole other conversation. We're not going there. I've got a better question, though. You you mentioned that there's always been this angst and anger and stuff in the world. Is it because of the internet we can see more of it that trouble makes us also troubled by it, or is it something else? Run, say that. Say that one again. I want to. Well, I'm just thinking because, like back in the, like the Civil War, it took news days to travel. Before right. that, years if it ever got off the the island that it happened on. Is it because we're so inundated by information about other places and that we feel this overwhelming cloud of negativity all the time, or is there really just more of it? Oh, I think it's always been that way, but I think now we're just so uh, immediately aware of things. Um, like when people start this, oh, the world is coming to an end, the apocalypse, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, yeah, but... You know, when Krakatoa exploded in the 1800s in Indonesia, it's not like people in London or New York knew about it. You know what I'm saying? You know, whereas now something like that happens, and all of a sudden people know about it because of the worldwide net and the rapid, you know, the rapid response of our news media. But um, um, as far as strife and anger and genocide, I mean, that's been going on since since the dawn of time. And um, you, you pose a very thought-provoking question. Does the news media intensify and make this more rapid? Well, if you look at Nazi Germany, they certainly didn't have the type of, of news media that we have now, but what news media there was was completely controlled by the government. So then let's take that back even further to, let's say, like the Crusades. Okay, going hundreds of years back, you had uh, the Muslim religion, which occupied the Middle East, and then you had the Christians, uh, the, the Greek Orthodox or the Byzantines, and then you had the Western Christians, which we now refer to as Catholics, um, developing this intense hatred of what they considered to be pagans overrunning sacred sites. And then the Muslims looked at them as infidels that were invading their lands. And, and so I don't think that that animosity and, and hatred have really um, intensified. I think they've always been there. I think now we're just simply more aware of it much quicker. And with quicker comes more of it, so it seems like there's more. Or 
It it does. Um, you know, I I like to think. Um, I, I always like to think that there is hope for humanity. Now, maybe I am. Maybe I'm a hopeless optimist. Okay, because it would certainly seem with the development of our destructive capability that we're going to blast this world into atoms. I mean, I mean, human beings. There's always going to be a Kim Jong Un, a Vladimir Putin. You know, there's always going to be a you know an Assad. There's always going to be one of these snotty people that that really think they need to dominate things and develop this massive destructive capability. And it's fascinating that I've 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 been very humbled to meet. I've met in my life Neil Armstrong. I met Buzz Aldrin. I met John Glenn, and I met Mike Foreman. Okay, four different astronauts. And they gave you all the sec- they gave you all the secrets about the aliens and UFOs. No, I'm just kidding. Hi, get back to your Buzz, serious point. Well, uh, Buzz <laughs> is a pretty interesting guy, and Buzz has a lot to say about that. But um, they all talk about when you're in space and you look at the Earth and how alive it is. They go, it's. They said you can't even imagine how beautiful the Earth is. It's this blue and green and orange and gray and and every color it's like this bubble of life in this void and they said you know this is the only place we have to live i mean this is it (laughs) okay this is it i mean you know the starship enterprise is not taking us to mars anytime soon and they all talk about when you look at this you realize how futile and how ridiculous it is for people to fight and make war on each other and Maybe, like I said, I'm an incurable optimist, but I'd really like to think that perhaps at one point humanity will begin to understand that this is the only place we have to live, and we cannot use our destructive capabilities and unleash them. I I think most people, a vast majority, fall somewhere on that spectrum of peace and let live and... Well, I think most people do. I, I think your average person in the world, whether they're from uh, the Central African Republic, uh, the the island of Borneo, uh, or you know Gary, Indiana, I think their basic person wants to have a job, security, um, a good life for their children, roof over their head, and come home at night to somebody who loves and cares about them. I think that I think that probably 99.9% of the people in the world feel that way. Unfortunately, that other 0.01% ruins it. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow they seem to be the one the ones that end up in in positions of authority to to inflict this misery. There's something to be said about that, but I'm just not sure what at this moment. So we'll just we'll just dance away from that. Um I'm not sure where I want to dance to. Um, I want something. Else, I, I see this on your website, and I know your books are kind of about this. So we're going to dance into this for a few minutes about um, grief management and grief um, dealing with grief. Sure. Um, what's I mean the process? I mean, obviously, once you lose somebody, you go through the the, the viewings and the funeral and all that stuff. But I know there's not a rock solid answer that somebody should be. I don't want to say over it, because that's not what I'm going for either. But accepting it maybe is more of the term I'm looking for. Where, where does that window? Sh- I mean, I know it's I, different I, for everybody, but 
when should somebody seek help or, you know, guidance? At what point does it become an issue, I guess, is where I'm headed. It depends on the person. Um, and thank you for pointing out on my website there's a whole section called Grief Management. There's several pages within there on positive ways of coping with grief, the immortality of the soul, spirit contact as a tool in healing from grief, affirmations, prayers. And uh, one of my favorite sections, the best and worst things to say to someone in grief, but I'll get to that in a minute. Everyone's different, uh, Jim. Everybody grieves in a different way. Um, there's there's uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about, I believe it was the uh, five stages of grief, but there's two phases. There's shock and trauma. And shock is what happens when somebody dies. Whether you knew it was coming or it was unexpected, we're in this fog, this shock, this I can't believe this, I can't believe this. And what you described about going to the funeral, the wakes, going through the societal rituals that we have, what's appropriate when somebody dies or what we believe to be appropriate. And shock is when you can't concentrate, sleep, eat, you feel like you're outside of your body looking in. It's just it's just horrible. And then shock will fade and then the trauma sets in. And trauma is what we have to live with for the rest of our lives and it's brutal and it's merciless. And the question is what time when do you reach out for help? It depends on the individual. Some people are better at accepting the reality of a death. Other people are not. And there's no one way or right way. The most important thing to acknowledge is that you need to confront and embrace your grief. Um, if you try to ignore it through drugs, alcohol, impulsive behaviors... I write about this in my book, Evidence of Eternity. It creates the grief-crime-grief cycle. I see this a lot in children and in young adults. Somebody in the family dies. could be a grandparent, a parent, sibling, even a pet. And the grief is not dealt with. Nobody talks to the child. There's no counseling. Hey, get over it, dude. You know, whatever, man. You know, I see parents talk to their children like this, and it's like, I'm so glad I was not raised by people like that, Okay. Don't call your kid dude. Don't act like, you know, he's your drinking buddy. This is your child, okay? And children are not good at expressing a lot of times. Uh, how can they be? They don't even they don't have the skill set to deal with death. Yeah, cuz you don't know what you don't know what you don't know. I mean, yeah, and, and even adults, you know, completely fall apart and we have, you know, some semblance of maturity and experience to draw upon. So, if if grief is not dealt with properly, what will happen? is this can lead to impulsive and irresponsible behaviors. Drinking, drugs, stealing things to get that high, um, sexual acting out, rage. So the grief can lead to behaviors which result in crimes, which in turn inflict grief upon somebody else. I think one of the best examples is a drunk driver. You know, I've never met a happy alcoholic or drug addict. So let's say there's somebody when they're 11 years old, their granny, their grandmother, who was really close to to him, um, loved him, took care of him. Granny dies. So nobody um, deals with him or he's from a broken family and and nobody counsels him. He's left to his own devices and he starts to drink and and, uh, use all kinds of drugs. And then one day when he's 24, gets behind the wheel of a car, uh, completely drunk, and doesn't mean to hurt anybody but does and kills somebody. 
So his grief led to crime which inflicts grief upon other people. And I have seen this happen thousands and thousands of times. And that's why grief counseling, talking about it, turning to your faith community, turning to your friends, reaching out for help is not shameful. It isn't weak. It's like men cry, men grieve, men hurt. Okay, Women are probably better at, at processing their emotions than men. But men need to realize that we have tear ducts and feelings for a reason. And it's okay to seek counseling. Because what I have found is, um, as somebody who is an alcoholic or a drug addict, yes, AA and and drug counseling is, is important, but let's get to the root of it. What caused this extreme state of unhappiness? And 99 times out of 100, you're going to find it's unresolved grief. See, I asked that because I had... I was watching, I want to say Netflix, but I could be wrong. And they were talking about Ted Williams being the greatest ball player ever, and they had all these clips about Ted Williams, you know, told the whole baseball story. And then they went into later in his life, and then it went into talking about why the family froze his head. And that's, I mean, part of it was they didn't have a spiritual belief tradition to fall back on. So that that cryogenic process gave them hope for being together again one day and something that you know you originally when you hear that at first you just kind of laugh and think well that's just silliness I mean science is getting there I'm guessing we're probably closer than either us know but then you take back and you you sit back and you think about it what what else were they supposed to do if they didn't have that religious background to bring closure or hope for another day, it really got me thinking. And I, I'm glad that you were able to be on tonight because that kind of plays into what you talk about. Well, you know, um, religion plays a very important part in, in our lives. Where I have a problem with religion is when it's used to justify anger, bigotry, hatred, and violence, okay? Um, when people say that God hates you because of this and God hates that. And um, you actually quoted me once. You, you made a, a, a graphic. And, and I put this on my website one time, and some lady went berserk over it because she didn't understand it. And, and I don't know, she just, I think she had a problem. But um, the ultimate act of ego is creating God in your own image so that he gets to hate the same people you do. Okay, so when people say, well, God hates gays, God hates this, God hates Democrats, God hates Republicans who don't vote this way, God hates Muslims, God hates this, and then Muslims, God hates people who are, you know, and, and that goes on and on. That, that has nothing to do with God. That has to do with people's egos. What religion is, religion is, is a conduit, is a path to connecting with God. And I like there's this, there's a Hindu uh, saying that there are many paths up the mountain, and the only person on the wrong path is the one running around the mountain telling everybody else their path is wrong. <laughs> Which <laughs> I think that's so funny, you know. But it's true. Um, there was a great Islamic scholar. He talked to uh, uh, Rumi, Jaladin uh, Rumi, and he said the lamps may be different, but the light is the same. So think about it. We're all connecting with the eternal light, um, God being the source of light, love, creation, energy, power, healing in the universe, the the quantum field that that, uh, unites and connects us all. And so each religion is a lamp, 
but it all burns the same light. And people need to realize that and stop this, my religion's superior to your religion. Um, I've had people tell me, well, oh, you were raised Catholic. Well, that's terrible because you're an idol worshiper. Okay? And it's funny because, like, I remember when I was a kid and I went to a Protestant church. It's like, well, we're all the statues. How could this be a house of God? It looks like a garage. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, 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 you know, then understanding that it has nothing to do with a building or a structure or a book. It has to do with your heart and being filled with compassion and love because that's what all the great spiritual teachers um, have, have taught. Um, and, and so religion can be a beautiful conduit to, to connect with God because it's also a means of putting a human face on the infinite. Also, faith communities um, will have grief support groups. They will have outreach groups. They also form communities which are healthy and positive and productive. And, you know, Jim, I'm glad we're talking about them. I mean, this is Holy Week, okay? I mean, Easter is, is next, is next uh, Sunday, and Passover, for our brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, I believe begins this, um, this uh, Friday. And uh, a lot of times people say, well, why are Passover... And, and Easter, always so close to each other. Well, a lot of Christians need to realize that the Last Supper was a Passover dinner. And it was a, it's a, and I've been to a, friend, a Jewish friends of mine have invited me to Passover. It's great. If anybody, if you get the opportunity to go to a Passover dinner, absolutely do it. It's just beautiful and wonderful because, you know, according to, to uh, the book of, uh, of Exodus, this is where. Um, the night that the angel of death came through Egypt, um, and uh, the Hebrews put the the blood of a of a lamb above the doorpost, so they you know so the angel of death would pass over them, and they had this specific meal with the bitter herbs for their suffering, and the salt water for the tears, and the unleavened bread, and so on and so forth. And when you see a Passover meal, you suddenly realize this is the same as the as communion in a Christian church. It's the bread, the wine, because that's what Jesus did, is he served the Passover dinner and the bread and the wine to his disciples. Well, the reason that Passover and Easter are so closely intertwined is because Easter and Passover must occur after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Okay, so the vernal equinox is generally May 21st, sometimes it's May 20th, okay, the spring equinox, the vernal equinox, and then whenever the full moon is, Passover will be after the first full moon, and Easter will be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And so, because a lot of people have asked me, well, why, do they, why are they always like in the same week, and why does it move around? And that's why, because in the Hebrew tradition, their calendar was lunar-based. And so, and the Last Supper was a Passover supper. And according to, to the, the story, the legend, uh, um, after the Passover suffer, uh, supper, then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested and, and then put on trial and crucified the following day. So, anyway, because it's Holy Week, I thought it, it might be good to bring that up. Well, that's a good point. And then the, my, my added layer is it's amazing how many traditions have melded, like you were mentioning there, melded together from other religions that kind of, I don't want to say this, have taken a little bit of something and made it their own, 
throughout time. Well, of course, and and that's that's generally uh, the way these things work. Um, oh gosh, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail from saying this. Um, His email is mark uh, mark anthony at magician or musician dot com. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, at don't don't write me dot com. <laughs> but um, most of the Christian um, festivals and and uh, days like Christmas coincided with an earlier uh, Greco-Roman uh, holiday. And a lot of people, uh, like um, in the, the Catholic faith, uh, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, her color is blue and white. Well, when the Romans occupied Egypt at the death of Cleopatra in 39 B.C., and I, and I say B.C. and A.D., I don't do that C.E., B.C.E., politically correct stuff. Let's face it. Um, even though it's um, off by six years, um, our calendar is based on when it was decided uh, Jesus was born. Okay, whether you believe he's divine or not, let's just you know stick with that. Um, but anyway, 39 B.C., Cleopatra dies, the Romans occupy Egypt. The Roman Empire was a polytheistic society. In other words, they believed in many gods. And the Egyptian goddess Isis, the Romans loved her, and temples to Isis sprang up from Egypt all the way to Britain, which were all controlled by the Romans. And 300 years later, when the empire shifted from from being Greco-Roman, you know, gods on Mount Olympus, to the new Christian religion, temples of Isis became shrines to Mary. And so Mary then took on the colors of blue and white, and Isis was a peaceful, loving maternal energy, the feminine face of God. That's why the, um, even though she was Egyptian, the Romans liked her. And if you think about it, at least in the Catholic and the Greek Orthodox religion, Mary, you know, is not a deity, but in many ways represents the supermom, the, you know, the, the loving feminine energy. Now, I know the Wiccans and, and the Celts and all that always believed in a powerful mother um, creator goddess, and so there is this feeling throughout many religions that that a feminine energy, like God has both a male and female component, and in some respects that's the role that, the, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, plays. Now, I'm not saying that that's what it is. I'm explaining, based on my, my studies over the course of my life, that, that that's where it has evolved from. As far as I'm concerned, you know, God is is neither male nor female but both and neither in other words uh, god is is so far beyond beyond gender but but in order for there to be procreation you must have the male and the female components and so what's wrong with with at least respecting mother mary which now brings me to notre dame cathedral Notre Dame literally means Our Lady. It is dedicated to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And an interesting fact is, in the 13th century in France, more stone was quarried to build cathedrals to honor Mary, the mother of Jesus, than stone was quarried to build the great pyramids in Egypt um, uh, thousands of years before. That's a lot of stone. <laughs> I, I always joke about, you know, building the Ark. Even if you drop me off at Home Depot and said, have fun, don't worry about the bell, 
I'm not sure I could do it. And I definitely couldn't build a pyramid. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because, you know, all these uh, churches throughout the Middle Ages had to have relics. There's enough fragments of the one true cross, probably, to build Noah's Ark if you put them all together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, while we're having fun, well, irritating people, this this I seen this this morning and I I kind of winced thinking about asking you this tonight. So this this hate mail comes to me, not you. I seen that the French government is going to uh, chip in some money for the restoration of Notre Dame. And on surface on surface blush, I went, oh yeah, of course. And then I went, but if that happened here people would lose their ever-loving mind about the separation of church and state. Yeah, that's that's going to be a tough one. On the other hand, though, it's also um, a World Heritage Site. It is a national treasure. It is almost a thousand years old. And um, private, uh, private contributors have already pledged almost a billion dollars. Um, I think the French government would be remiss if they did not. Now, if this were to happen in the United States, groups right and left would be uh, suing, uh, saying that you're violating... Like, like for example, if that were the great mosque of Paris, would there be the same type of support? That's another can of worms. Yes, it is, and one we're not going to open tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to shift gears violently here to get away from that topic because... Neither of us are qualified to speak on. If somebody out right. there is listening and who wants to open that can of worms with me, look me up. We'll do it. Um, maybe. Uh, so, you you said you've visited Paris and some. Other, I know you visited some other places and have visited a lot of cities in the United States. So, what's left on Mark Anthony's uh, to do travel list? Oh, a lot. Um, I, I still haven't been to India. Uh, it's driving me crazy. I haven't been to India and. And I haven't been to Egypt, even though I've studied Egyptology my entire life. I mean, I just, it's funny, people come to my house and they go, do you live in the the Egyptian wing of the British Museum? (laughs) I mean, it's like, um, and um, the reason I don't go is because I just, until things stabilize, um, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not, uh, I'm not planning that, but, but for right now, I'm continuing um, my my U.S. tour. I just finished Houston. I'm going to Naples, Florida next week, Unity of Naples, and it looks like I'll be in um, several other states, and I'm going to be in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm going to be in uh, North Carolina. Uh, looks like Arizona, New Mexico, back to Texas again, certainly Florida, and I'm, I'm hoping uh, Minnesota um, as well. And I normally do about uh, 20 cities per year. So I'm focusing on that. Also, Jim, I'm, I'm working on my next book now. And um, my first book, Never Letting Go, is a guide on the journey through grief. Evidence of Eternity bridges the gap between the spiritual and the scientific by explaining the afterlife in terms of science, uh, quantum physics, and, and human physiology, as well as faith. And in uh, the new book, it's going to go even deeper into the quantum physics aspect of the afterlife. But for anyone that, that is un, not familiar with my books, please don't think it's like reading algebra, okay? Um, I may discuss these things, but thankfully my work as a trial attorney has enabled me to take complex concepts and explain it in a way that it, you can understand and it's fun to read, and I illustrate everything with fast-moving stories. 
so so you know don't worry about uh, um, a slow moving dry narrative because the way I look at it is if I'm not entertained and 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 fascinated by it, then how can my readers possibly be? As I say, if if you like Mark tonight, you'll like his his books. Pretty much is the way they go about that. I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've, we've talked to you a lot for the years. Houston must rank high as places that you like to go because it seems they recept you, receive you well there, and you keep going back. Well, yes, um, I've got um, a lot of uh, a lot of fans in Houston, but I also do in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, California. Uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Florida, um, uh, the Midwest, St. Louis, uh, you know, so I get invited uh, to these places uh, quite a bit, and uh, so, you know, it's, if I'm invited, I'll go, and um, certainly um, I I would like to hit every one of the 50 states, Uh, Hawaii last year, that was a lot of fun, I got to do a tour of Hawaii, and also a film project out there, which is you know we're still you know, um, working working on developing. And um, uh, the Hawaiian spirituality was fascinating. Uh, the Hawaiians have this concept of mana that everything has its own unique mana, which is a vibration. So essentially, a thousand years ago, the Hawaiians figured out what Einstein said is that everything has its own frequency and vibrates at different different frequencies. And I think it's fascinating when you see a culture that at first blush you may think is primitive, but it isn't. It's actually quite sophisticated and coincides with modern discoveries in the realms of uh, particle physics. So as we get close to two minutes left, I've got this important, very important question. Any chance of Mark Anthony 2020 going to run for president? (laughs) You know what? I'd rather be CEO of Disney than president of the United States. Why? You'd have more power, more money, and a lot more fun. <laughs> well, now that they're buying Fox, overtaking Fox, I don't know how that all works. Yeah, it makes I, my head know, hurt. I I don't even want to talk about politics. Um, <laughs> well, I'm talking about I, Fox and Disney. I'm not talking politics. I was just cracking you about running for president. Well, you know what? All I can say is thank goodness that our founding fathers believed in separation of powers. And separation of church and state, because let's say we had a um, ego-driven, tyrannical personality that got elected, um, that person might actually um, declare him or herself dictator. And fortunately, that's not going to happen. Hypothetically speaking. Hopefully. Jeez, Pete, that'd be bad. Um, give the website one more time before it's I forget. Evidenceofeternity.com. Um, and you can find out about my tour schedule, my books, and uh, um, and also grief management on how to um, how to cope with the loss of a loved one. And I look forward to seeing all of you on when I'm on tour. Also, if you go to my website, evidenceofeternity.com, please sign up for my newsletter. Uh, they're they're sent out frequently, and we'll keep you updated on what's happening and where I'll be. Well, Mark, it has been fun. It's good to connect with you, even though it has been too long. And um, I'm sure you'll let me know when the new book's coming out, but I'm going to have you on before then. Oh, absolutely. I'll let you know, for sure. So, don't be a stranger. Of course, you, you never are, but I'm just a strange one. That's a whole other story from another show, though. <laughs> <laughs> have, have a good night, Mark. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. You take care. God bless. Thanks. Bye.
and that's a friend of the show, Mark Anthony. Not the musician, the psychic lawyer. Good friend of the show. Good night. The views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. Thanks for listening. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500, on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcasts. 